Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. Good evening, Lewis. Hello, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Now, this is just a quick note at the start of the show to say, Newcastle, we are coming to you. We're bringing a live show to you in about three weeks, June 5 at the Civic Theatre. We'll see you there. We've got Kirsten Drysdale, James Pender from Sammy J. Uh, Dylan Bain's going to be joining us also. Uh, you're going to be there, Lewis. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thrilled. I'm so excited. I haven't been to Newey in uh, in forever. I'm thrilled. Uh, and I can reliably report we've already sold ten tickets, Lewis. We've sold ten tickets. Man, that's uh, quite. That's uh, that's really exciting. That's more than I was expecting. Uh, but thank you. That's all of the Johns brothers. <laughs> I'm recording my end of a rational fear on Gadigal land and the Yorin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. A rational fear contains naughty words like Brexit. Canberra Fair Dickum and Section 40 A Rational Fear recommends listening by immature audiences. Tonight, Ellen DeGeneres is ending her hit talk show after 19 seasons to spend more time focusing on bullying her staff. And Amazon bids $11 billion for MGM Studio, the same studio that owns James Bond. In unrelated news, the latest 007 feature film will feature a power-hungry trillionaire who's actually a pretty nice guy. And straight white men are not allowed to talk, according to Joe Rogan, on his podcast that reaches 100 million people. It's the 25th. 1st of May 2021, and Dave Sharma has just bought shares in Irrational Fear. This is Irrational Fear! Irrational Fear! Don't forget, 
Welcome to Irrational Fear. I'm your host, geriatric millennial Dan Illich, and this is the podcast that opens the jaws of the news crocodile and puts our head gently on its tongue. Let's meet our fear mongers for tonight. It's been a while since we've had this guest on. You know, during the during that time, you know, he's actually managed to get himself on television's The Block without having watched a single episode of The Block. It's returning friend of the podcast, Andy Saunders. It's me. Hi. How are you, everyone? <laughs> I love you. Yeah. How was your how was your block experience, Andy? It was amazing. It was so easy. It was 102 days with no days off with an average of 20 hours physical labour a day. So normal. Hey, buddy. <laughs> Welcome to television. <laughs> <laughs> and she's the star juror of the ongoing years-long trial that is the federal government. Pulling the levers on the Guardian's live blog, it's Amy Ramikas. Hello. 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 <laughs> how are, how are you feeling, Amy? You, you you look well. Are you are you betraying? Does, is your is your outward demeanour de- betraying how you're actually feeling? Yeah. Well, actually, this this I spruced up. So if that gives you any idea <laughs> of what it's been like, you know, knock yourselves out. And he's one part of Triple J's Hobber and Hing, but which part? He won't tell us. It's Lewis Hobber. <laughs> I'm very coy about that. I refuse. <laughs> Um, until I'm dragged in front of Senate estimates, I'll never reveal it. Coming up a little later on in the podcast, we'll be joined by independent candidate for the Upper Hunter, Kirsty O'Connell, and we'll ask her, why won't she eat a lump of coal on camera like all the other candidates in the Upper Hunter? Why won't she? But first, here's a message from this week's sponsor. A message from Virgin Australia. You may have heard our CEO say that the cost of opening up international borders is that some people will die. Sorry for the gaffe. It's our first time. We want to let all Australians know that there's always a small risk of dying on one of our flights, be it from the food, overcrowding, or watching too many Adam Sandler movies on long-haul connections. At Virgin Australia, we're committed to helping our customers reach their dream destination. But an unlucky few will also reach their ultimate destination. At least Virgin Australia customers can take comfort in the fact that, unlike Qantas, your death will most likely be delayed. Virgin Australia. Some people will die but probably not on time. Thank you very much, Virgin. This week's first fear, the International Energy Agency has yielded to the woke United Nations greeny conspiracy that Earth's ecosystem is going to collapse if we can't limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, The International Energy Agency, for people who don't know, is made up of uh, some of the most powerful fossil fuel cartels in the world. It was created to ensure the even and fast distribution of fossil fuels to the world. And it's immediately said this week that all investments in fossil fuels should stop immediately. To which the federal government said, fuck you, we won't be told what to do by anyone. We're Australia. We zig when everyone zags. That's why we're spending $600 million on a new gas fire plant in the Hunter Valley. That's just what we do down under. It's going to create job. Ten long-term job, to be precise, and we need this power. Yes, according to the reports by the Australian Energy Market Operator, our new $600 million gas-fired power plant is going to be operational for at least 2% of the time. Yes, 2%. Fearmongers, we've heard so much about this gas-led recovery. How does a power plant that employs 10 people and works at 2% of capacity steer the country away from recession? Um, Lewis? <laughs> I think it's so exciting. I just think it's so exciting that you've got an energy agency which is made up of fossil fuel companies who are like, 
we honestly didn't think we'd get away with this for as long as we did. We uh, we didn't think we'd get to a point where we had to tell you to stop us. They're like the serial killer in a TV show that is leaving clues and they're like, he wants us to catch him. <laughs> that's, totally, that's, that's very accurate. Amy, how do you feel about this? This is something that's been across your desk a lot. It has been across my desk a lot uh, and anyone who's covered Parliament in the last 10 years, it's been across their desk. This is essentially an insurance policy because we have fucked up so comprehensively in Australia over the last 10 years in not having an energy policy, we've now reached the point where coal is coming out of the market much quicker than we anticipated uh, and we haven't given the confidence to the private sector to invest and do all the things that they need to do to give renewables firming power. So the government's gone, oh, shit, what are we going to do in that little in-between time when everyone in Sydney turns on their heaters to avoid rats or whatever and uh, <laughs> we need to, like, move some power along and we don't have it? That's essentially what this is, a $600 million insurance policy for when you guys all turn on your heaters. Insurance is expensive, but not normally $600 million expensive. <laughs> You've never insured anything in North Queensland, obviously. It's also like the, uh, you would know about this, Amy, because I feel like I was reading a lot of um, this stuff that was making my head explode in The Guardian this week. But the developer who owns the Curry Curry area where they're, um, you know, building the $600 million plant had previously been in front of ICAC uh, where he described himself as a walking ATM and got in trouble because he was giving cash donations to the Liberal Party out of the rear window of his Bentley. Yep, yep, that is a thing that ICAC, uh, you know, managed to cover off, uh, and that is also a thing that is being currently, uh, in, I suppose, looked at as part of this project. But, uh, I mean, the government says it's chosen this area because there's infrastructure in place and we've got gas pipelines already heading there and snowy hydros, all systems go, and we can get there kind of quicker than if we were building it from scratch. But, I mean, is anyone surprised with anything this government does at this point? Like, they're going to win the next election, but is anyone seriously surprised by anything that they do? I, I think it would have been more, more um, you know, acceptable if he was giving, um, giving that out of a Honda Odyssey. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, but uh, and I loved uh, your take, Amy, on uh, the government's fucked up for the last 10 years. I'm Aboriginal. I know that's not true. Uh, as well as that, I know a lot about this and I think fossil clothing is shit. I say burn it all. <laughs> I think it was so strange that this is like unallocated money left over from the budget that wasn't allocated in the budget and the government then directed Snowy Hydro Limited, a company that they own, to build the plant. That's kind of like if Scott Morrison ordered the ABC to make a documentary on Andrew Eddinghausen. It would employ a bunch of people for a period. Uh, it would get 2% share on ABC TV+. Plus. No one would watch it. But it would create jobs. That's important, right? Yeah, whole, whole 10 or so jobs. I mean, like that, the unallocate, like basically there is a bunch of money in the budget. It's about $3.8 billion or so, like for the near future, which has been allocated for projects but not yet announced. So it's essentially stuff that the government's going to do uh, and they're just going to announce it whenever it works out best for them in terms of election timing. 
And election timing couldn't kind of even be better because, of course, right this weekend, which, which we'll talk to Kirsty a little bit later on, there's an election in the Upper Hunter. Andy, you live in that area. Do you uh, Can you feel it being election time for the, state, for the state election, for the state seat? Can you feel it? I can feel it in my waters. I can tell you right now, it's a buzz throughout the entire community up here. We are talking about it constantly while we drink our lattes and our piccolos. It is on the forefront of everyone's mind. Not. I'm kidding. Uh, We do talk about it, yes. When you heard that there was $600 million going to basically a, a business that every person in business says is a bad business, did you not just think, like, if you're going to bribe our area, just go directly to our pockets? Like, just go door to door with 10 grand each, just slip it in, and we'll vote for you. They're not Tasmania. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what they do in Thailand, though. They get, they, in, in some Southeast Asian countries, parties will actually pay people to vote for them on a, on a person by person basis. I honestly, at this point, I would run, like, the trickle-down bribery which is going on at the moment is so frustrating. Like, I I just feel like we all deserve some of the sweet takes of this outright pork barring. No more trickle. No more trickle. Just make it direct. Direct bribery. No more trickle. Just uh, open up the hydro dam of funds right into my bank account. I'll set a price. It won't be that high. I'm an ABC employee. My standards are low. I'm for sale. Irrational fear. Well, I think if you talk about cash flow, I think we came in more or less uh, as per expectation. $6.6 billion for the quarter, I think, is a resilient number. But indeed, the year was a very tough year, let's be honest, and a very painful year. This is Irrational Fear. This week's second fear, a mouse plague is happening, of course, in regional New South Wales, and it's still growing. It's yet to peak. Some experts are predicting that the millions and millions of rodents that are currently around regional New South Wales could be heading to Sydney within a few months, August, they're saying. Uh, Boy, are they going to be surprised when they get here because we have a serious rat problem in Macquarie Street. Am I right? (laughs) (laughs) Bit of politics for you. Andy, you live in regional New South Wales. How has your mouse experience been so far? I've had a Brazilian. Hey, what what do you mean? What do you mean you've had a Brazilian? Telling you, I've had a Brazilian. I, uh, that's <laughs> totally unrelated to rats. I just want to let you know. But uh, we've had a couple. I have to admit, um, Debbie, my beautiful wife, and I, we've caught a couple of a couple of rats in our house. Well, not rats; they've been mice, and um, they were. Uh, Absolutely tasty. Really, really nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think. Do, what What will Sydney ciders feel when they when they when a whole bunch of mice make it to Sydney, Andy? You're like, how can you best prepare Sydney ciders for this uh, influx of mice? Um, look, I think they're going to uh, take the um, the you know h- how they're really anxious about cockroaches. Well, it's going to take the anxiety about that away from cockroaches. Now they're only going to be worried about um, mice and rats. So I think mice and rats, they're furry, they're cuddly, they're nice. They're nicer than cockroaches. I live in, in Sydney, uh, pretty close to the city, and uh, the last year when the pandemic hit, I don't know if you guys remember the stories, but rats were migrating to the suburbs because all of their food sources, which were like the garbage bins of restaurants, were empty. That's right, And yeah. so in that move, in the sort of exodus of rats, a bunch of them took residence in my roof 
And I would like as a, we had a cockroach plague and then we had the rats and I would rather mice. Like if the I know that it's a very serious issue for regional New South Wales, but if they do make it as far as Sydney, I will I will welcome the change of plagues just for novelty's sake. I just uh, just always nice to have a new plague. Stop being a speciesist. Okay, I mean, every species needs a say and a platform, okay, and you're just stopping this from happening. Andy, I was providing a safe space. I was paying the rent for those rats. Look, anything to take the the focus of, of hipsters down in Sydney. I mean, I've seen a hipster taking it to the next level in Sydney of late. I uh, I saw someone with a monocle. I was like, you should have went to Specsavers, bro. You're going to be fucking blind before you're 25. <laughs> Amy, uh, looking at the maps of of the Rouse Plague, it, quite, it overlaps with Canberra uh, significantly, the ACT. Have you had... Uh, um, a bad mouse experience yet in Canberra? No, well, you know, not of the four-legged variety, but um, I am from Queensland, so, of course, I've already lived through a mice plague, as well as locusts as well, you know. We like to get all of our plagues over and done with uh, in early childhood. It just better prepares you uh, as an adult Australian. But all I can say is for anyone who is facing the incoming mice plague, go to Bunnings or something and invest in one of those door snakes and put them under your bedroom door because those little fuckers will squeeze under there and you will wake up with mice in your bed or your wardrobe or your shoes. Like, it happens. So if the mice are on the way, go get your door snake. Amy, I've um, recently purchased something called the Nooski. Um, and if you're hearing us, uh, Nooski, I need a few more. Um, but they are very, very effective. They are very effective. And Nooski is self-explanatory. Hang on. So, huh. uh, so it, you, you do have to explain because it's a podcast, so people can't see what's going on. But Andy, what? what you made a very threatening gesture across <laughs> your throat. Talking about preventing them getting into your room, you're talking about murdering them. So, you know, just a wild I, Saturday night. When I was a kid. If we didn't have mice, I felt left out in my house. <laughs> we grew up hard knocks, man. If people knew you didn't have mice, they were like, ah, you don't have mice, you have a clean house. <laughs> I grew up, it was, there was a lot of bushland around and when we got like the tail end of the mice plague that had hit like Toowoomba and those sorts of areas, the snakes just were so full they just literally gave up like eating the mice. Like the mice were running <laughs> over the snakes and they were just laying there just like lump, 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 just being all like, oh, go on, like I've had enough, like go live your life, it's fine. Our cats our cats would just sit there and just kind of play with them because they were bored with killing them, like, you know, it's a whole experience. It's character building. If you haven't had to dig a very big hole in your garden to bury bags of dead mice, have you actually lived? That is what the, the people in the northern suburbs of Sydney can look forward to in August. Keep digging. They'll kind of find a couple of other bags while they're at it. <laughs> <laughs> Joining us now to discuss just how the migration of country mice to Sydney will affect big cities is Derek Phillips, who is, am I reading this right, a mouse? 
Derek, why are mice... Small rodents. Sorry, why are small rodents moving to the city? Dan, it's mostly about jobs and food. In regional Australia, jobs for mice are far and few between. We can't farm, we can't dig up coal, and as for the food, well, it's slowly being destroyed by careless open-air practices by farmers that are leaving grain just lying around for us to eat. I mean, it's like a fizzler that never closes. We can't be trusted. So now we're moving to the city where jobs and food for small rodents are plenty. You say jobs are plentiful, but where are the jobs for mice in the city? Well, the city's full of computers oh. and every computer needs a mouse. Well, most computers have already got mice, don't they? Well, some don't, do they, smarter? I don't think it's that kind of mouse. Of course, science and medicine have traditionally been big industries for mice. Dan, lab rats are for rats. Oh. We're better than that. We're working on our media career. Oh, a media career? Three names for you. Mighty Mouse, Mickey Mouse, Grant mm. Denyer, all small mm. rodents who've made it big in the city. As any breakfast radio host from Dubbo will tell you, you can't forge a lucrative media I, career from I, the region. I, but there's only a few of those kinds of jobs in media and there are millions of you. Oh, did you hear that? Dan Ellis oh. doesn't think media diversity is important. Yes, I do, but not at the expense of actual people. So your species is interesting. No, not at all. A critic of yours says that millions of mice moving to the city would put further pressure on house prices. I think I know who said that. Someone called Remy. From Ratatouille? Yeah, that's him. I knew it. You can't trust Ugh. the media. They're in the pocket of big rodent. Of course he would say that. He's bought so much property with that Pixar money. He's now uh, a bigger rat in New South Wales than Morris uh, Yammer. Uh, okay, well, there's no need to get defamatory. Small rodents are coming to Sydney, so just get ready. I'm available for the bachelor if you need me. Now, if excuse me, I've just seen everyone running down a tube that smells like peanut butter and it looks very inviting. I've got to go. There you go. Thanks, Derek. Good to be with you. All right, this week's third fear. According to the NDIS minister and part-time plausible denialist, Linda Reynolds, the National Disability Insurance Scheme is too reliant on individual public servants' judgments and their natural empathy. Oh, she said that this isn't this in defence of severe cost-cutting of the programs that are meant to help some of the most vulnerable Australians with disabilities. Fearmongers, are our public servants too caring? Amy, you live in a city full of public servants. I do live in a city full of bureaucrats. What I'm just most amazed, though, is that uh, the government has made such a big deal out of, like, empathy training. Like, MPs have had to go off and get empathy training. Scott Morrison's office or, you know, department had an empathy consultant. So we've spent an undisclosed amount of money on empathy training for our ministers to turn around and say, everyone's got too much empathy. We were right the first time round. Just scrap it all and then just let's just do everything black and white, yes, no. Well, that was, remember when Andrew Lamming went into uh, empathy training and his comments coming out was that what he learned in the course was that he had too much empathy. It was just too empathetic. (laughs) It is absolutely a problem when you're allegedly abusing people on Facebook. It turns out you're just engaging with your constituency. So who knew? Mm. And if Linda Reynolds took the same approach to Andrew Lemming, we would just replace Andrew Lemming with an outside a, outside a third-party company just to make the decisions on Andrew Lemming's constituents' behalf. Andy, you've worked in the front line of uh, social care for a long time. What do you think about this? I've worked on frontline community service for a very long time now, and um, I've found that the best way to approach people with high needs is just judgment. Like you come in and be as judgmental as possible. I mean, uh, being (laughs) this thing about (laughs) being empathetic is just, (laughs) 
This is way out of the ballpark. Why would you do that? I mean, that doesn't bring around, bring about good positive outcomes, does it? I mean, be judgmental, people. Be judgmental. Okay. I feel judged already, Andy. I feel. I feel like. I feel like we're going to get some results tonight, Amy. The amazing thing about it, though, is that being empathetic and displaying empathy is literally in the charter for public servants when they're dealing with the public, and particularly when they're dealing with uh, high uh, high need members of the public and vulnerable members of the public. It is actually there in black and white to show empathy for situations because we're dealing with life and death situations and you need to have empathy because people are not always going to be able to explain things to you the way that, you know, you'd like, you would like to, to have in the timeline that you would like to have. They're not going to always be articulate in just explaining their situation or their symptoms or their needs. So you have to deploy empathy to kind of go, you know what, what is actually needed here? What is this person actually saying to me? It's literally in the charter. And now the minister's gone, oh God, this looks like this insurance scheme is becoming unviable because it was set up to help people with high needs and now it turns out that maybe we have too many people with high needs so we're going to stop using empathy and you're either going to make this list or that list and if you're on this list maybe you'll get some help and if you're on that list well good luck to you. It's so interesting now, like seeing how the NDS has been rolled out and as someone who has people in their family who rely on the NDIS, it's so hard already to get services out of the NDIS to kind of make things even worse and harder. It almost it almost undercuts the entire the entire reason the NDIS exists. I mean, I don't have a question here, but it's just so frustrating to see already kind of an under uh, an under-resourced agency being completely ripped apart and being already being stuff that's already outsourced so much to third parties have even more third party stuff attached to it. It's it's so bizarre that that they're trying to do this. Have they considered giving have people you know on the NDIS considered giving some cash out of the rear window of a Bentley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that something that's <laughs> is that something that's on their list on the to-do list? That might work. I, I mean, I, I've heard it works in certain quarters, so you never know. But like that's that's the yeah. thing though, right? We've committed six hundred million dollars to a gas power plant that's essentially going to be a white elephant for most of the time and in a couple of years will be obsolete. We've committed five hundred million dollars to upgrading the war memorial. Uh, despite everyone kind of going, you know what, we don't actually need that. So we've already got a billion dollars sitting there for just vanity projects and because we haven't had proper policy and yet we continually take money and resources from the people who need it. It's the reason why uh, the unemployment benefits are so low. It's the reason why the NDIS is now looking at whether or not your needs are high enough for you to be able to be in control of your care. So you've got people now who have been in wheelchairs where the independent assessors are going, oh, we're not sure if you have mobility issues or not, because it's becoming that stringent in how they're looking at it. And the NDIS was not set up to make money. It was set up to fill a really big gap in the market to help people who weren't getting help any other way. It is our social responsibility to make sure that these people have a high standard of life because they're our family, they're us, 
and we are failing at it and we're letting the government get away with failing it. And it's so hard to kind of figure out like as as just a person, like how do you how do you kind of reappropriate the kind of resources that it needs to be where it needs to be? Like there are so many people that need this and there's so many people that don't need a gas power plant and it's just so just so frustrating, just so frustrating. But the trick, the easy part is if you don't have empathy, it's quite easy <laughs> to fuck those people over. And that is true. <laughs> well, I've, I hear that they are looking for, like much like environmental technological solutions, they're looking for an empathy technical solution uh, and I think the government is trying out something new. Here, let's have a listen. Thanks for calling NDIS. Unfortunately, all of our empathetic public service employees are attending other customers or they're in a meeting with human resources because of something they tweeted or are at home suffering burnout and your call has been diverted to our artificial intelligent empathy hotline. If you require a computer-generated voice to occasionally say listening sounds like, oh yeah, and, "Uh uh-huh, and, oh no you poor thing, press 1. If you would like to be misdiagnosed by an artificial doctor, press 2. To experience having this call being passed to an endless loop of computer-generated NDIS employees for several hours, press 3. To speak to a human, press 4. That's a little computer joke. There are no more humans. They're all fired. If you would like to meditate to the peaceful sound of a dot matrix printer, stay on the line. The Hunter region in New South Wales is responsible for most of the historically third-tier emissions that Australia has ever produced. But as the world's appetite for coal cools, it's strangely business as usual for the Hunter, with Labor and the Nationals backing coal like there's no tomorrow. Our next guest is an independent standing up against them in this weekend's by-election in the Upper Hunter because she thinks there could possibly be no tomorrow. Born and raised in Musselbrook, we're joined by independent candidate Kirsty O'Connell. Kirsty, welcome to Rational Fear. G'day, Jen. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> How are you feeling, Kirsty? You've got the big election coming up. Uh, if you're listening to this right now in the podcast. It's tomorrow. How are you feeling about this weekend? Look, feeling, feeling pretty good. Feeling pretty good. We've had some great coverage today um, and we've had a lot of people come out and say nice things and I, I'm not quite sure what they're saying behind my back, but they're saying nice things to my face. Tell us a little bit about how you feel about mining's future in the Hunter and what are you offering in terms of perspective that the major parties definitely aren't? Again, I've been accused of being a radical, treacherous lefty, as as many fifth generation farmers are, uh, <laughs> and I'm I'm making <laughs> wild propositions that maybe, given that we have 100 million tons worth of spare supply of coal, and given that you know the people who buy our coal are saying more and more that they're going to be buying less and less, that, that maybe we might not need to keep opening new coal mines, maybe a smart thing might be to actually invest in all of the other industries that we have and actually create some jobs rather than just letting us all fall off a cliff and then kind of dealing with it once that happens. Yeah, it feels like at the moment um, uh, coal-like coal and gas-powered plant, uh, power, power plants are a bit like Pie Face in Melbourne in the sort of <laughs> mid-2000s. They keep popping up and everyone looks at them going, I'm pretty sure we don't need this many pies. <laughs> And yet everywhere you look, there's a new pie face. And then five years later, there were no pie faces and everyone looked around and was like, I had a feeling. I had a feeling about those. 
Absolutely. It, it just reminds me of that, you know, that auntie or uncle that you have that after the invention of the iPhone, they present you with a Sony Walkman for Christmas and they go, look, look what I'm giving you. <laughs> it's funny you make that analogy. Uh, Vista, who is a gigantic fund in the United States, owns 36 gas plants in the USA and they're not planning on building any more. Instead, they're investing billions in renewables. And the CEO of Vista said, I'm hell-bent on not becoming the next blockbuster video. I'm not going to sit back and watch this legacy bin, uh, business dwindle and not participate. It's pretty um, It's pretty an interesting, interesting analogy and it kind of holds true. Like they, These are big companies that are moving fast to renewables. What do you think... Is, is the appetite for renewables from people who do work in in kind of fossil fuels at the moment? Are they interested in seeing renewables come to their town? Well, you know, it's a funny thing, Dan. I, I'm actually related to a lot of coal miners and I've got a lot of coal mining friends and, and neighbours. And they're among the first people to slap a solar panel on their roof. You know, it's, right, yeah, it's, of course. These are intelligent people. They, they understand that the technology is there. And yet we've got this weird dynamic where um, – the government is trying to convince us that somehow, you know, we actually need to mine as much coal as we do to keep the lights on. Never mind the fact that there's only actually only three coal mines in the state that coal goes to making coal-fired electricity. So, you know, the vast majority of what we're mining is going overseas. It's got nothing to do with keeping the lights on. It's got everything to do with enriching big coal companies who make big donations. Kirsty, can I ask a question? Because obviously um, in, in issues like this and in areas like the Apanta, it's always jobs that is like the excuse given why it needs to happen. It's always like it, this will grow jobs, this will grow jobs. We saw it in the federal election um, with the mines in Queensland, even though it was only going to make sort of 1,200 jobs federally. What sort of answers do you have to those questions when people are asking you, like how are you going to replace these jobs when these coal power plants shut down? Well, look, I'm not an economist and I'm not a coal miner. It occurs to me that if you had, I don't know, 20 Chinese restaurants in town, you wouldn't be begging to open the 21st Chinese restaurant in town. And particularly not if Chinese food lovers the world over were committing that they were actually going to go and start eating Japanese food rather than Chinese. And yet this seems to be the furphy that's being sort of shoved upon us, is that somehow if we just keep producing more coal, it will make people buy more coal, which has never been true ever. Nobody has ever done that. You know, so it's, it's, you know, this is just some crazy economics going on. I'm making the really wild proposal that, you know, while we actually have an income stream coming from mining, while we're, while we're generating a billion dollars worth of coal royalties a year out of the Hunter alone, maybe we should actually bring back a fair percentage of that. And I'm going to suggest 25% is a fair percentage of that. We could bring it back and we should invest it in the other things that we do really well, like, making wine and breeding horses and agriculture, feeding people, clothing people, you know, tourism. I'm pretty sure that with a fertile river valley three hours from Sydney, three hours from five million consumers, that we can make a buck or two out of actually not ruining our environment. <laughs> I think that's, that's logical mm. to me. I, I promise... Kirsty, I've bought more wine from the hunter than I have coal. That's, um, that's my promise to you. A couple of weeks ago, Malcolm Turnbull made the journey to Upper, Upper Hunter and stood by you and publicly endorsed you. How was that for you? How did that go for you? How did that go down in the Upper Hunter? People keep asking me about this and I, I know it's so weird and it must look so weird from the outside because 
you've got this former prime minister and this totally unknown person. But the weird <laughs> part about the two and a half thousand strong community that I'm part of is that Malcolm actually is a local. So he, he comes along and donates cattle every year for us to run our annual camp draft. He's actually the reason we still have the, the local camp draft and radio grounds and we use it for fundraisers, things like the Westpac helicopter. So we kind of, we all knew him before he was famous. To us, he's the guy who lives at East Roscoe. Well, not all the time when he's not doing other, you know, important stuff. He lives at East Roscoe. And he's the kind of guy... When he's not at the mansion in Point Piper, you Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. And I, oh, God, I so love that John Barillaro accuses Malcolm of, of being, you know, this super rich yeah, man, dweller. Many, I'm sure many of our listeners are also fans of Friendly Geordies and they've seen Michael Barillaro's yeah. house. It's okay. Yeah. So he deals, the guy deals himself a, a cruise ship terminal and some nice renewables and then he flies up to the Hunter in his brand new RM. And tells us how new coal is good for us. I enjoy that a lot. <laughs> well, I, I hear the boots are, are really good for distributing cash out of the back of those cars too. That's pretty good. <laughs> hey, I'm, I am never going to criticise them for distributing a bit of cash in the Upper Hunter. God knows they've taken enough of it down to Sydney. Still be I'm glad they're putting some back. <laughs> Did you think there could have been somebody else who would have been maybe a little bit more popular in the Hunter to stand by you? Have you thought of maybe getting Hamish Blake to stand by you? Oh, He's very oh, popular. Do you know? Do you know? I would love to meet Hamish. Can you arrange it? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. oh, he's, a, he's a friend of the show. He's a friend of the show. Yeah, well, yeah. Why not? Why All right. Not? I'm totally, um, I'm now, totally up for that. And Spicks and Specs. I'm just, my uh, lifetime ambition is to get a bit of a Guernsey on Spicks and Specs. As, as a frustrated oh. drummer in a band, that would be a great, you know, life achievement for me. <laughs> uh, let me tell you, it's a, it's a very close shop, Spicks and Specs. I've been a comedian for 15 years. They've never asked me. <laughs> uh, right, now, it's if, hard to get well, a go. <laughs> I've been on it, but um, don't want to bring it up there. <laughs> uh, now, if I'm a national supporter in the Upper Hunter this weekend, and I've always voted nationals, what can you say to me to convince me to change my vote? I would say to people who voted that, I would say to people who voted Labor, you know, regardless of how you've always voted, this weekend is an opportunity for us as a community to finally get the bargaining power that we've been lacking for 90 years. This is an opportunity for us to go to the polls and say to the government, hey guys, it's actually time you started to take us seriously rather than take us for granted. We've done the heavy lifting for you. Now you're going to do some for us. And so I'm encouraging them. You know, If you don't like what I'm about, that's, that's absolutely fine, but please vote for an independent because I think that's what we desperately need. And there are some really decent people running. So, you know, make that choice. Choose to deal yourself some bargaining power and, and let's see what we can actually create in the, in the Upper Hunter because I think it's a pretty special place. Kirsty, I can't, I can't believe you haven't had the slogan, Kirsty O'Connell, think of the pork barrelling. <laughs> I pretty much have. I pretty much have. I've said to people. Of course, you'll have a huge amount of, you'll have, you, if you get in, you'll actually have a huge amount of power as part of the cross bench in New South Wales. So that's a really, really good point of view. <laughs> Oh, yeah. This is what we're aspiring to, Dan. <laughs> Think of the pork barreling. Uh, Kirsty, thanks for joining us on Irrational Fear. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It's so nice to have a laugh. It actually <laughs> part of a really fun show. That's it for Irrational Fear. Big thanks to Kirsty O'Connell, uh, Lewis Hobber, Amy Ramikis, Andy Saunders. What would you guys like to plug? Lewis, you want to plug anything? Uh, I've come to our shows. I'm really excited about um, our tour. We'll get back going to Newcastle and um, going to Bega as well. I actually um, was just doing some Googling before about places around Bega. Now I'm, 
I was already excited. Now I'm really excited. It's so beautiful around there. June 5 at the Newcastle Civic Centre. Do come along. Uh, Andy, Amy Ramikas, what would you like to plug? Uh, not so much plug anything, but just maybe just a bit of a cause. Just listen to Palestinian voices. Think about the coverage that you are taking in on what is happening in Gaza. This is not a both sides thing. There is a shift happening and Australia risks missing out on being part of it because we're still silencing Palestinian voices and pretty much refusing to change our coverage on it. And I think that really needs to change. Uh, thank you, Amy. Andy, do you want to plug anything? All of the good stuff and uh, my new uh, thing I'm just about to launch cultural parkour in a lap lap, just a loincloth and you and some trees and rocks just jumping off shit. Oh, it's going to be so good. You think it's not good now, but you'll be doing it next year. Uh, big thanks to Road Bikes, the Bertha Foundation, our Patreon supporters. New ones this week include Catherine Garrett, Lindy Conway and Georgia A. Thank you so much for donating to our Patreon. It really helps us keep the show on the air. Um, big thank you to everyone who joined us tonight. Until next week, there's always something to be scared of. Good night. 